most applications, if you want to get people to use an app on the blockchain, you have to offer some benefit that, you know, that is 10 times better than the existing centralized solution. We're really in the wild, wild west here. And there's so many unanswered questions that are just going to have to be figured out through experimentation. I'm Tor Bear from Enigma. Welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Decentralize This presented by Enigma. I'm Tor Bear. I'm the head of growth for Enigma, and today I am very excited to have on James Duffy. James is the CMO and co-founder of Loom Network, where they're building a scaling solution for decentralized applications. They're particularly focused on games and social applications, and they've had a lot of success already with some of the things they've built, such as Zombie Battleground and Crypto Zombies. A lot of zombies. Uh, we're going to talk about scalability, why Loom is building for the Ethereum ecosystem, why user experience is the real blocker to adoption of decentralized applications, and how blockchain games can be better than traditional games, as well as critical for onboarding new users and developers into the decentralized ecosystem. Now, James and Loom Network are definitely builders, not just talkers, but I was very glad to have him on to talk with me about his experiences and his expertise. So without any further introduction, here is James Duffy. James, thank you so much for joining me on Decentralize This. It's a pleasure to have you, man. Yeah, thanks, Tor. Thanks for having me. So we start off every episode same way. I'm going to ask you one quick question. Who are you professionally, personally? Who is James? Okay. Well, I'm James Duffy. I'm the co-founder and CMO of Loom Network. So that means I run all of our marketing side of things. Um, and I can go into more detail on various subsets of that question. Sweet. Uh, yeah. I mean, we're going to definitely talk about like what Loom is, what marketing as a function kind of looks like for blockchain projects in particular. We're, we're also going to get to talk about a lot of the challenges um, that Loom is trying to solve, uh, such as scalability and user adoption. Um, one of the big problems that we're solving on this call right now is time zones. Where are you joining this call from? Yeah, so right now I am in Bangkok, Thailand, where it is 9 p.m., and I think it's 9 a.m. for you. It is 9 a.m. for me, so we're, we're battling a 12-hour time difference here, which is not uncommon in the blockchains and decentralization space. People are scattered all over the world. Where else do you spend your time outside of uh, Bangkok? Yeah, so I'm kind of back and forth between Seoul and Bangkok mainly. Um, our main office is here in Bangkok, so a good number of our team are here, but the majority of our team is actually remote, and the marketing team is totally remote. Um, and I've been based out of Seoul for the past 10 years or so. So I'm kind of based out of there, and then I'm here pretty much every month. And where are you from originally? I am from the U.S., uh, Northern Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. Awesome. So you've got now a global perspective. Like You, you yourself appear to be decentralized, which I think is pretty impressive. Uh, but it might be exhausting, so <laughs> I understand. Uh, <laughs> I definitely want to talk about how um, how approaches to this industry kind of differ in all of these different locations. I think uh, South Korea has a very different perspective 
on decentralization and cryptocurrencies and things like that. Um, but I want to jump right into things. I want to jump right into uh, what you're doing at Loom. So can you quickly describe uh, what Loom is, what you're trying to do? Yeah, sure. So basically, Loom Network is an Ethereum scaling solution through layer two sidechains. And basically what that means is these are independent blockchains that run um, a different consensus algorithm, DPoS, which most people know from EOS. So it allows for a much higher level of scalability, um, but the cost of that is less decentralization because you only have a limited number of validator nodes. Mm -hmm. And then we're connect to Ethereum through Plasma Cash, which basically allows users to send assets to the sidechain. Those could be you know, Ether or ERC-20 or ERC-721 tokens. Use them on the sidechain, but they're fully backed by the security of Ethereum mainnet. So basically you get an increased scalability on the sidechain, um, but you can do this with the security guarantees of Ethereum. Yeah, I, I think that actually Loom and Enigma and other projects that are, have gone for these like layered solutions, we have a lot in common in seeing Ethereum as like a very robust developer ecosystem, uh, a robust chain right now as well. Uh, and we'll we'll definitely get to talk about like why you decided to build on top of Ethereum, uh, you know, versus maybe going another route. Um, my my first thing I want to talk about though is something else that we have in common. Enigma spun out of the MIT Media Lab. The MIT Media Lab slogan is, is one that I really like. Uh, it's deploy or die, right? It used to be demo or die. It used to be just like you have to like show something off or it doesn't mean anything. Now it's more deploy or die. Like you have to get it into the wild or it doesn't count, right? You, you have to get people hands-on with what you're building. And at Loom, I, you, you have a, a different phrase, but I think it's the same spirit. It says, we don't write white papers, we ship product. So you're letting the product do the talking. I'm, I'm curious, like, why, why is that so front and center for you guys? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think um, all me and my two co-founders, we all come from startup backgrounds. Um, and in a startup, you, you need to move quickly. You need to ship something early and then get real feedback from your users and see, are you actually building the product that they want? Um, pretty much no startup has ever built something in isolation for you know a year or two years with absolutely no people trying to use their prototype and then come out of the gate with a fully functional, perfect product. And it was exactly what the market was looking for. It's important to get something out there early and then get real users using it and then telling you, hey, we need this feature, we need this feature. And sometimes what you end up building is not at all what you originally intended. And that's why it's really important to have this iterative loop. So outside of your users, where do you, where do you get feedback from? How do you know that you're building the right thing at Loom? Yeah, so part of that comes from the early users who are trying to build on Loom. And then a lot of it actually comes from our own internal projects. So um, we started building a game called Zombie Battleground. And we can talk more about that later. But it's a fully functional mobile game that runs entirely on the blockchain. And um, before that, we have a site called Delegate Call, which is um, it's a question and answer site that runs fully on the blockchain. And we built these products on top of our platform, and that kind of helped us define what were the shortcomings, what were the features we needed, and it really helped us shape um, our SDK to be easy to work with and build on. 
Yeah, that's that's a really good approach, I think, is is sort of building the whole stack yourself. You know, if you're building a foundational solution, you want to also be responsible to some extent for building the applications that are going to run on that solution just to be able to put yourself in the shoes of developers more easily. And now Loom is becoming a platform, as you said, for many things, but it seems that gaming as a vertical is something you guys are really interested in. Can you talk a bit about that and maybe why that is? Yeah, sure. So I'll back up a bit and say that uh, first we started building the platform and then kind of what we found is that this space is still so early and there's actually, there's not that many people trying to build like real applications right now. There's a lot of uncertainty about what are these next applications going to be, what really takes advantage of the blockchain. Um, and we kind of realized that because we're so early, we might as well go first and be the ones to build some of these first, you know, kind of groundbreaking applications. And in terms of gaming, so most applications, if you want to get people to use an app on the blockchain, you have to offer some benefit that, you know, that is 10 times better than the existing centralized solution. And that's proven hard to do. Um, I think we will see these like amazing, you know, these killer dApps emerge. But until now, we haven't seen a lot of ideas that are really, you know, 10 times better. And you could not do that off the blockchain. But with gaming specifically, it's really easy to onboard users onto a new game because you don't need to build a game that's 10 times better than any game that came before it. There's literally 100 million users around the globe who download a new game every single day. Um, this is based on actual actual data. And um, yeah, it's, it's a lot easier to get users on board and playing it. And then there are some really real benefits to running a game on the blockchain that we think once we introduce users to, they'll get hungry for more and more of these games. We brought Marguerite de Corcel on for an earlier episode, um, and she she's at Neon District, and Neon District is is building on Loom, right? So yep, that's correct. So we spoke with her a bit about like the challenge with gaming is like not only do you need to be building like a, a blockchain game, right? Whatever that means, but like you also have to build a good game. Like it has to be something that stands on its own, and as you said, maybe it doesn't have to be ten times better than existing games, but it does have to be good. Uh, and I think you've written before, uh, or somebody at Loom has, about the the challenges there, right? That it's not just about like building something that'll function and get up there. It's like, how, how do you think about like supporting people building on Loom who don't just want to like make something that works and that's cool that it can work and this is a new kind of infrastructure, but something that actually like feels really good in the hands of the end users. Yeah, obviously that's our end goal is we want to get, you know, a lot of very serious application developers and game developers building on top of Loom. Um, so right now you have kind of the, the community of blockchain developers who are mostly people who are just really interested philosophically in the blockchain. And then a lot of them learned development, you know, because they wanted to get more involved in the blockchain mm. and, um, the, these users are great. They're, they're really helping push things forward, but it's a lot harder to expect a blockchain developer to build a game that's really fun than it is to find an existing game developer and convince them to build on the blockchain. 
How are no, you convincing is, them? I, I'm curious. Yeah. Like, well, what's the pitch to like a traditional game developer? And you're coming in and you're saying, make blockchain a part of this. What, what's their reaction? And if it's if it's negative in some way, how how are you convincing them that this is a great idea? Yeah, that's a great question. So the reaction right now is like a lot of interest. We've been able to get phone calls with executives at some pretty big companies and they're really interested in this whole blockchain thing. They, they've seen the hype. They don't know that much about it. So they're at least curious to learn more. Mm-hmm. But up until now, we haven't seen, you know, a real breakout hit on the blockchain. The biggest thing that we've seen is CryptoKitties, um, which had a peak daily active users of around 14,000. So that's that's huge in blockchain terms, but that's still really tiny, you know, for in, in game developer terms. So... That's kind of what we've realized is that we need to to really convince game developers to build on the blockchain. We need to start by building a game first, and then we can come to them with a case study and say, we built this game. Uh, these are This is how many users who are playing it. This is our monetization model. There's this group of users that's really hungry for these type of games. And if you build one of these, you know, basically, here's how you'll monetize it, and here's this huge group of users that's that's just waiting for more games to play on the blockchain. I would say there's a lot of gamers in the Loom community, obviously. And uh, one thing that you guys made, because you spoke briefly about learning, and you guys made this game, Crypto Zombies, uh, which is kind of like an educational game, and you can play it in Telegram. Can you, can you talk a bit about that? Because I, I don't see anybody doing anything like that. Yeah, so Crypto Zombies is actually an Ethereum code school. It's like an interactive uh, coding tutorial. Um, and this was at, right after CryptoKitties came out. So we kind of saw the huge interest in that. And so we built a tutorial on how to build a blockchain game like CryptoKitties. And this was almost a year ago now. And, and that really blew up. And, and we've gotten a, a ton of interest in that um, from developers who want to learn to build on the blockchain. Um, the one in Telegram I think you're referring to, we made an um, kind of a sequel that was meant to be educational about the blockchain itself, mm-hmm. kind of teaching people the, the bare basics about the blockchain, you know, what is a private key versus a public key and, and things like that. And that was kind of like a, a gamified mini game. Uh, that one didn't blow up as much as we had hoped it would. But uh, <laughs> you miss 100% all your... of the shots you don't take. Yeah, exactly. I guess. Well, you had a reasonable expectation that something like that would get interest, I guess, just just from the success of like the first iteration. And I really do think that as a strategy for getting more people interested in blockchain development that are maybe coming from the traditional world, either from the game side or from the development side, it's a really clever strategy. I'm wondering if there's what else have you considered doing? Uh, at Loom or, or anywhere else, or what's just like a crazy idea? How, how do you think we can get more people from the traditional world or, or, you know, I don't know how to refer to it, like traditional doesn't seem quite right, but from like the world that we've grown used to, how do we get more people from there uh, building the kind of things that, that Loom is trying to build? So I think the easiest answer is that people are incentivized by money. So if you can show developers, there's a huge demand for blockchain games, for blockchain apps. And if you're one of the first ones to start building these apps, you can make a lot of money doing so. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, that's a great incentive. One of our top viewed articles is um, 
is why you should learn to build blockchain applications. And it's basically talking about, you know, the app store effect when, when the first apps came out on the app store, there was a huge demand and a very low supply. So, you know, these first apps did really well. And then over time, this just blew up. And now, you know, Apple's app store and the Google play store are these huge, huge marketplaces. And we see something similar happening in the blockchain space. And so developers who get in on that early, there's kind of a huge opportunity for them. Yeah, I, I do see more and more people kind of going that route. And as you said, money can be a, a big aligning factor um, for, for people. Again, people have very real choices to make between, you know, the, the real jobs that they currently have and doing something that's currently extremely speculative like blockchain development. And, and one thing I've heard is that people have been turned off a bit you know, by the volatility that they've seen out there, both in terms of like price and sentiment uh, for cryptocurrencies generally. And I, I see a downstream effect in how many people are getting into the space more generally. Um, I, I think it's kind of dangerous if people start associating how much is being built in the space and the interest in the space with the price of the tokens or coins underlying the technologies that are being built. I, I don't really yeah. see that being a correlation. What What are your thoughts? Yeah, and let me be clear there. When I'm talking about making money, I'm not talking about speculating on different tokens or cryptocurrencies. I'm talking about the blockchain actually builds payments into the protocol. So you can release a game on the blockchain and it, you can directly monetize it by accepting payments. And these could be in ETH, but they could also be in a stable coin like DAI or, you know, um, TUSD, or there's a bunch of other ones that have sprung up recently. So as a developer, if you build a game on the blockchain, that's really fun. And um, we're kind of experimenting with some different models for how to monetize these games. And, mm -hmm. you know, hopefully we can offer those as templates to developers like, hey, here's a really good monetization strategy then they'll get rewarded by providing a, a fun game that people want to play. And this is totally independent of, you know, the price of crypto fluctuating. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it sounds very encouraging to say that when people are getting interested in this stuff, they, they're getting interested just for, you know, how we can be building a sustainable industry of blockchain games, not how, you know, they could be building tokens into their own platforms. I mean, one one way that I always think about tokens and crypto, crypto economics um, is by using these digital economies from games uh, as case studies. What do you, what do you think of like these in-game economies? What have you, have you seen traditional games like really succeed at having healthy in-game economies? Like, and if so, which ones? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So there's definitely been plenty of examples of failures of in-game economies. Mm. Um, and I think the ones that we've we've seen definitely succeed so far are kind of like cosmetic enhancements or selling skins or selling things that don't give an in-game benefit because um, if people can buy things that have an in-game benefit, um, you know, the game either becomes pay to win or, you know, there's, there's massive inflation and dilution of these things or you know, any player can just spend a couple bucks and have like the best items in the game immediately. But, right. but one model that has succeeded is in, you know, in League of Legends, the entire monetization model is in buying these optional skins that change the appearance of your character. Um, and 
there's a couple other games that have adopted the same model. And kind of what benefit the blockchain offers here is if you spend real money on an in-game item, like a skin for your character or, you know, a custom designed a gun for your character or a sword or something like that, you can actually resell that item just like you could in the real world. Whereas in a traditional game, the company locks you down. You can't resell anything. So basically, this is good for the company. They make a lot of money. But from the player's perspective, this isn't great. And I think when the players see an alternative, oh, I can play the game that if I spend money, that's just a sunk cost. Or I can play the game that if I spend money, I can resell the items, recoup that money if I quit. Um, They're going to choose the latter. So... I really love that idea as somebody who's played a lot of games in my past and has witnessed the failures of thing like the Diablo auction house when you talk about yep. pay to win and, and things being super broken. Like from a player perspective, exactly. It's a terrible user experience to to see that happen. And then, of course, there's like the in-game gold uh, kind of economies where, where there's uh, inflation or, you know, and it's very centrally controlled, much like, you know, a lot of the tradi- traditional financial system. I definitely see blockchain playing a big role here. You're you're saying something interesting now about, you know, these items escaping the game itself, right? And, and to me, that sounds a bit like we're starting to talk about interoperability or items that can transfer outside the game world or maybe to other game worlds or to the analog world. Do you, do you see that as something that blockchain is enabling? Does this have anything to do with like NFTs? Yeah, so this is this is an amazing, super cool benefit of blockchain and gaming that not enough people are talking about. And I can actually go into depth um, on Please. on this podcast because um, we have some unannounced things that probably will be announced by the time you release this. But basically, what the blockchain enables is these expandable worlds that anyone can contribute to. So, gaming uh, in gaming, modability has always been a very important driver of innovation you know you had counter-strike built out of half-life you had um the whole league of legends dota thing was started as a custom map for either starcraft or warcraft Mm -hmm. um there's plenty of these examples of mods becoming you know some of the biggest games now in the blockchain for the first time you can actually allow independent developers to mod server-side logic so One thing we're doing in Zombie Battleground, so this is a collectible card game similar to Magic the Gathering on the blockchain. One thing we're doing is we're enabling custom game modules. And what I mean by this is that the actual logic of of how the rules of the game are played, you know, when you get into a PvP match, we extracted that into a single Solidity file. And now... We're going to open it up so any developer can code their own game module and they can deploy that to our blockchain. And now players playing the game can see a list of these custom game modes and they can choose from any of them and then they can see which ones are the most popular, which ones have the most players playing. And, you know, a developer could define completely custom game rules that are totally different from what we originally built, but that might even become more popular than the original game eventually or custom tournament rules, things like that. And this is a simple example with a card game, but if you take this to something like an MMORPG where the developers could actually enable other developers to deploy their own game worlds that kind of extend the original game world, 
the players could use their same characters in those game worlds. And now you have a bunch of independent developers actually like building on the same universe. Um, and this is something that we're really, really excited about because we think this is one of the first killer features of the blockchain. You cannot do this in gaming without the blockchain. I love this idea because now it sounds to me like we're starting to get to this 10x idea, right? This is something that could potentially be 10 times better, cooler user experience than traditional games. You're utilizing something about blockchain that isn't just like, you know, <laughs> how much it sucks for so many things right now. You're using it as like the cool thing that it actually can be to enable the the super awesome unique elements of these kinds of games i i can't wait to see personally yeah exactly because you get this trustless base layer where no one can set the rule no one can change the rules about who can deploy to this or what users can access it basically once it's out there on the blockchain it's in the wild and you know whatever rules were in that smart contract are now mm -hmm. there to stay and um so third-party developers can build on this existing game and its assets knowing that it's always going to be there and the developers can't shut it down. They're not going to close off the API in the future and, and you know, they would have wasted a bunch of time building on top of it. Right. Everyone can trust this as a, you know, third-party thing that is always going to be there. So this is a great segue into something I wanted to ask you earlier, but this is the right time to talk about it. I've heard you say that, you know, developers are incentivized to build on platforms that they know are not going to change the rules on them later down the line, which takes away, you know, everything that they've built up to that point. That's a huge risk in the decentralization space. It's also a huge risk in the traditional world, you know, where Google can tweak their search algorithm and, you know, put real businesses out of business. And this is getting to this question of, you know, decentralization and unstoppable applications. Like at Enigma, we talk a lot about like how we're trying to enable unstoppable applications because that's the whole point of decentralization. You want, you want to be truly decentralized because then you can claim something like that. You can build a platform that you know is going to continue to support both developers and users out into the future. There's things that aren't Ethereum that, you know, also claim to be fundamental platforms uh, for developers. And I, I think I've heard you talk in the past about, you know, why they're not really decentralized or why they're not necessarily uh, better for the user or developer. Can you talk a bit like why you specifically are choosing to work with Ethereum and, and maybe what are your thoughts on some of these other smart contract platforms that are out there claiming to be vastly improved versions of Ethereum. Yeah, absolutely. So I have an article titled Ethereum will be the backbone of the new internet, which um, goes into depth on this question, probably more articulately than I'm going to say right now. But um, there's a couple main reasons. And one is that for one, Ethereum already has this critical mass of developer adoption. So our code school, CryptoZombies, has had over 300,000 students now. Um, I think Truffle. That's incredible. Uh, I, I agree. I mean, it blows my mind that there's this many people interested in that topic. And um, yeah, Truffle Suite, I think, has had over 300 or 500,000 downloads. There's, there's a huge number of people who are trying to build things on top of Ethereum right now, and no other blockchain platform comes even close. Right. And this number is growing month over month. 
Yeah. So that's the first thing. Another one is that we strongly believed you need a fully decentralized base layer um, for what you're building on top of. And the reason why is because when people, when someone pays money for an asset on the blockchain, they want that asset to hold its worth so they can resell it in the future. And what happens over time is these blockchains are holding billions of dollars worth of value in those assets. Now, something fully decentralized like Ethereum, it's extremely hard for someone to attack the network and do a 51% attack. But all of these other blockchains that have boasted, oh, we can do, you know, 10, 10 times as many transactions per second as Ethereum, they're doing this by trading off that decentralization. So most of them are using DPoS, um, which you'll have, you know, it's different on each blockchain, but 21 validators or 51 validators. Mm -hmm. And the problem with this is that a government or a large corporation or, or an individual with a lot of money can publicly identify these validators and they could or, or these validators could identify each other and they could come together and form cartels or, you know, they could be bribed by some individual to basically influence that network. And when you have billions of dollars at stake, that's really not something you want to be doing. Um, now, if you do this on layer two, we're also using DPoS, but we're doing it on a second layer. And the benefit here is that the majority of value is still stored on that decentralized layer one of Ethereum. And then in small amounts of that value can be moved to our layer two mm-hmm. in order to use them on the side chain. Um, and it's kind of like the user can, can choose how much they're willing to put on the side chain at a time. And then if you add in plasma cash, now it's fully backed by the Ethereum mainnet. So yeah, the main problem with these other platforms is that you don't want to have all that base layer blockchain. You don't want to have any way that someone could collude to take over that network or to censor transactions yeah we at enigma definitely that's something we've thought about it's like you want to inherit you want to inherit the security properties of that chain and you know we we work as like an off-chain solution that that's focused on data privacy and it's, it's the same sort of consideration right you you want to inherit the security properties of you know committing things back to a robust chain and it's also as you said the most robust network of developers this is who you want to be building with because they've they've been doing it the longest and there's a ton of them and it's an extremely talented and committed community and they haven't been paid to be there you know unlike maybe some other ecosystems (laughs) and yeah if you're building a product you want to go where the users are and if you're building a development platform um or or an application of course you want to go where the majority of the developers are we're going to be using that. It makes total sense. So let me let me do something here because I think we agree on a lot of things. I'm going to bring somebody else into the room, um, an unnamed Bitcoin maximalist who sat on a panel with us at a, at a recent conference, and uh, he declared that Ethereum was incredibly centralized. And okay. his, his argument for that was saying, you know, that that it's not really as decentralized as everybody thinks. That only Bitcoin is really decentralized, and and he glossed over the fact that there's mining pools and and things like that. But let I, I just want to take that spirit for a second and ask you something, uh, maybe difficult. But you wrote that Ethereum is the backbone potentially of of the new internet. What if it's not? Like if if this if we're wrong, and 
this doesn't work, what happened? Like, why Why would something like this, which has so much going for it, such an amazing community of developers, you know, these burgeoning use cases like gaming, why, why might it fail? Yeah, if it were to fail, I think it would just be because of something unforeseen, like, you know, some sort of exploit or flaw that kind of brought the network crashing down. But I would point out that no blockchain is immune to that because even Bitcoin a couple months back, you know, had a potentially fatal exploit that was patched. Right. Um, you kind of, the, I, the longer a blockchain is in existence and doesn't get hacked and destroyed, kind of the higher the likelihood that it's going to continue to be there and continue to be fine. Um, so you have, you know, Bitcoin is by far the longest lived blockchain. Mm-hmm. Ethereum, you know, is is now it, it's it's now up there in terms of its longevity. Um, also, when you look at the market cap of these different blockchains, the incentive to hack it, you know, as the amount of value on the network gets higher, the incentive to try to find an exploit increases proportionately. That's right. So there's no guarantees that. That's what I mean. This is experimental tech, right? We're on the wild, wild west. But so far as we can see, we think Ethereum has the highest likelihood of being this backbone of you know these these uh, Web three applications. Yeah, and let's talk about those applications for a second, because I've also seen you write. You know, we mentioned CryptoKitties before. You know, it's decentralized in the sense that it's built on Ethereum, and we're saying that Ethereum is decentralized. I want to be clear that you know we agree. At least, you know, Enigma kind of agrees on Ethereum. We're not Bitcoin maximalists in the same sense. We don't have that same argument. I, th- I think that you're right that uh, Ethereum is now like c- should be considered a, a decentralized chain and ecosystem. Um, oh, and just to add one more thing on that. If people are asking why Ethereum and not Bitcoin, yeah. the main answer for that comes to the number of developers building applications on top of it. Right. Bitcoin, the core developers have definitely optimize the chain to serve as decentralized cash or decentralized gold and and nothing right. else they they haven't added the feature set on the base layer that makes it easy for application developers to build on top of it so right now just the number of developers trying to build applications on bitcoin versus ethereum is is just much much lower yeah we we definitely run into this a lot where we talk about transactional privacy versus computational privacy a lot of people building solutions for, you know, anonymously transferring value. But it's much harder, but much more important if you're talking about like building Web3 to solve for computational privacy, you know, protecting the data being used by the smart contracts versus protecting the anonymity, let's say, of the user. Like it's sort of like a similar consideration, right? Like you want to be solving problems for developers. So you want to be building on the chains that are optimized for developers and where the developer community already is. But let me, let me just go back to the question I was about to ask, which is, which is relevant. Um, is an app like CryptoKitties decentralized, right? I think, I think you could see it both ways. It's decentralized because it's on the Ethereum chain, but I, I've heard you talk about how the dApps themselves can still be centralized in a sense. Yeah, exactly. So while the the code that is deployed to the well so the application is running on a decentralized blockchain, right. but the code itself could still have a backdoor in it, 
or you know give exclusive permissions or access to certain users on the network. So it's still important to audit the code to see what it's actually doing. Um, and yeah, this is a huge problem with dApps right now because the number of users who has the technical ability to actually add, audit smart contracts and, and figure out what's actually going on is much lower than the number of people who want to use them. But um, then, then you have this issue where um, if you're a developer and you deploy an app to Ethereum, it's rare that you're going to get it perfectly right the first time. So it's common for developers to put you know, this, this ownership clause into the smart contract to give themselves the ability to update it in the future if they need to. But then this isn't fully trustless because if the developer can update the smart contract and change the rules of some function call or something, then all the users who are depending on that contract, they could just have you know, their transactions rerouted to do something totally different. Um, and this is one issue that we're trying to solve with sidechains because you can actually have, um, so like I said, with Zombie Battleground, for example, we have these custom game modules. You could have versioned game modules mm -hmm. and the users could actually choose which version they're playing. So as a developer of the game, um, you're going to want to make balance changes. Maybe the players are playing and you, you realize one card is way overpowered. Right. So you want to nerf that card in an update. Now, traditionally, developers would just make this change and force it down on the users, and the users would have no say in the matter. But here, the developers could release a new version of the game module and encourage the players to update. And the players could actually look at the game module and say, no, we don't like these changes. We're going to keep using the old version. And the developers would have to listen to that and adapt. Um, or if the majority of users move on to the new version, the rest of the users will be encouraged to switch as well. So it, it's definitely an interesting problem, but um, it's one that I think best practices will emerge over time in terms of how to how to handle updatable smart contracts. Yeah, it's a big open question, and it and it raises another, which is you know, do we really expect users to have the expertise? to look at these smart contracts or look at the changes that are going to be made and recognize how this is going to impact, you know, especially if you've got a lot of code. And these are complex games, complex systems that we're building. Are they really going to understand the ramifications of, of these changes? Like, is, is that something that we can reasonably expect people to do? Yeah, and this is a really interesting problem because I think the, the logical market-based solution would be for you know, smart contract auditing companies mm -hmm. to open up who who do this for the users and, you know, give their stamp of approval, but then the users are trusting those companies and the issue of trust comes back into a trustless system. And there's mm -hmm. no great answer here, but the I think the important thing about blockchains is that now you have optionality. So yes, you a lot of users can trust the the third party to audit the contracts. Mm -hmm. Um but other users still have the option to audit it directly themselves. And yeah, it, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a messy problem, but because people always have the option to audit it themselves, um, you know, at least there's a chance that if there is something corrupt happening with the auditing company, that information can leak out and right. uh, there's social pressure on them to not do that. So there's, there's no clean answer here, but it's right. definitely an interesting problem. Well, it's something we've talked about on other episodes, which is, you know, there's th these trustless systems don't ever operate in a value in, in a vacuum. 
right? There's possibilities for coordination and collusion, uh, or like in mining pools or voting pools. And there's, you know, all sorts of, as you said, social pressures within like a developer ecosystem. You know, wh- right now, while the ecosystem is small, maybe that plays a huge role. Maybe later, if some of these things scale, that social pressure is not really a factor so much as like just what are the economics of these decisions and and the economics of voting a certain way as a user or a stakeholder in a in a change that's made to a smart contract. Yeah, we're really in the wild wild west here, and there's so many unanswered questions that are just going to have to be figured out through experimentation, and that's another reason why another often overlooked reason why sidechains are really important because like i said before the sidechain doesn't have this huge economic stake where that you know they have billions of dollars of value sitting on the sidechain so it's a lot easier to experiment with the sidechain and if you screw up and if you get something wrong um you know it's not it's not a catastrophic loss because you can have hundreds of these sidechains experimenting with different systems different ways of doing things and that's kind of like a much better way, you know, it's like an evolutionary way that we can figure out what works and what doesn't. Yeah, no, I, I completely understand that. Let me, let me ask you something that's kind of not on that topic at all, but it's something we talked about just right at the top. You're, you're saying you spend time between like Bangkok and, and South Korea. I, I want to talk a bit about like, how, how do you think Asia is going to play a role in, in the growth of all of this stuff. I feel like, especially in Korea, and maybe it's different for Loom because I know Koreans love, love, love games, love, love that whole uh, ecosystem, have built uh, huge businesses on the backs of like the gaming ecosystem there in a way that we haven't even in the Western world begun to approach. Like, wh- what do you see as the role that these markets are going to play in the long run or in the short run? like adoption of of blockchain technologies and, and adoption of maybe specifically blockchain games. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because there there's a lot of kind of blockchain hubs starting to pop up in Asia. So Bangkok is actually one of them. There's a ton of companies basing themselves out of Bangkok. Mm-hmm. Singapore is another, as you mentioned, South Korea is, you know, hugely into blockchain. China has its own kind of closed ecosystem of, you know, there's a lot of investment going on and there's a lot of projects that, you know, people outside of China maybe don't even have all the information on. Right. Actually, one of my one of my fears is that um, because of the in the U.S., the SEC's ambiguous stance on a lot of these things um, is like potentially scaring projects out of the U.S., so I think yeah. the longer they go without having clear guidelines and regulations on these things, I think their philosophy is kind of, oh, we'll, we'll wait and we'll see what happens. But because of that ambiguous stance, I think a lot of projects are going to start setting up shop in, in other countries and, and going to these countries that kind of welcome them with open arms. We're already and, seeing it. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, the, the next Silicon Valley might not be in the U.S. if, if that is the trend that continues. That's it's a I wouldn't say it's a scary thought, right? Like that's decentralization. I hate the idea that like Silicon Valley would be responsible for 100% of the world's innovation, which is, of course, the story they're selling and not close to reality. Um, But, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, it's not I mean, I'm not super patriotic either. But just 
as an American who I've been living overseas in Asia for 10 years now, I kind of look back. I'm like, come on, America, what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> I, I really don't. I'm not in the room. I can't say like where this is all going to end up, at least in, in regulation terms. But, you know, I've I've spent time in communities. I, I've spoken to people who are in Asia you know, either, either they were born and raised there or they've, or they've emigrated and man, it's like, it, it just is like a, a lot more enthusiasm for the, the underlying technology and it's, and it's possibilities and potential, you know, K- Korea, I think is, is ahead of the game. I got to go to Bangkok cause I've not been, and it sounds like it's, it's really up and coming. Yeah, absolutely. It's, there's a ton of projects here. Korea, I'm I'm not sure how much of it is like um, an interest in the technology and how much of it is still like a speculative kind of gambler's mindset on, you know, seeing these crypto tokens shoot up in value. Um, I think we can think safely say a lot of it is the latter. Definitely a lot of it. But, but the interesting thing is um, historically that th- these bubbles and busts seem to kind of drive more people into the technology. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people see it as a bad thing, but it definitely gets it on a lot of people's radar and brings a lot more attention to it and then brings a lot more people into the space who then become interested in building on it and supporting the technology. So this leads me to my last question for you, which is how, as you said before, like we've maxed out DAUs on something like CryptoKitties in the, in the tens of thousands. And if you look at now, the daily active users for a lot of these decentralized applications, they are in the hundreds at best. Um, and it's it's also something that's kind of hard to measure. Like, what are the appropriate metrics? How do you measure everything that happens on-chain versus off-chain? It's, it, the only thing we can say for certain is that adoption is nothing like traditional games or traditional applications. We're not there. So my question for you is, when do you think we're going to see the first decentralized application that has millions of users and what is it yeah so my opinion is that the reason we haven't seen larger adoption of the apps up until now is mainly a a user experience problem because an application directly on ethereum you know you have to wait at least 15 seconds for your your transaction to get confirmed you're doing a game or something mm-hmm. every single action you take you need to submit a transaction you know a metamask pop-up comes up you have to pay a small micro fee to make it happen it's just from a ux perspective that's so limiting in terms of what you can do so this is one of the main things we focused on solving at loom network so on our side chains uh, we've implemented a private key management service so basically the encrypted keys um you know are sent to the user and then stored on their device and the users can take actions without needing to manually sign every single action. This is a key for the sidechain. It's not their Ethereum private key. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically what this allows is, so our game Zombie Battleground, it's a fully mobile game. You just download it off the app store, you install it and you can start playing. You don't need to have an Ethereum address, own Ether. You don't need to know what the blockchain is even. So this is a huge hurdle removed. We can just onboard users naturally so they can just download these apps and start using them. And then later we can educate them, hey, you just earned an item. Did you know you could sell this um, on the marketplace and you can trade with other players? 
And then through them trading on the marketplace, they can earn their first, their first cryptocurrency. Um, they can learn what blockchain-based assets are and how that gives them full ownership over them. And I think this is going to be a huge step. And I don't know if Zombie Battleground will be the game that goes to over a million users. That depends on the playability and, and the fun aspect of it. But and to some I think extent, will the marketing. Be a, yeah, absolutely. Good luck. Um, and, and we hope it will be that game. But I think it will be a game that is the first blockchain app to reach millions of users just because, as we discussed before, um, it's a lot easier to incentivize users to download and try a new game mm -hmm. than it is to get them to switch from Facebook to a decentralized Facebook or something along those lines. Or switch from a bank to decentralized yeah, exactly. finance. No, I, right. I, I agree with you that in, in many ways the barrier is lower. Um, and, you know, we, we see a lot of potential for the same technologies that underlie blockchain-based games to affect, you know, dozens of other industries that are, you know, even more potentially valuable uh, in, in terms of their impact on the world at large. Um, I made Joey Krug put a bet on when he thought this was all going to happen. And without telling you what he said, I'm curious, like, if you had to pick a year, and of course, I'm not going to hold you to this, but maybe I will. If you were to pick a year for the first DAP with a million users, what are we? What do you think we're realistically looking at? I honestly think we might see it by the end of 2019, but I'll be conservative and say 2020. I whatever the game is, I'm sure I'll be playing it because uh, I don't want to be left out of the first amazing uh, blockchain game that that scales to a million users and. Uh, I, I want to be a part of something like that. I'm sure a lot of our listeners do too. If they want to learn more about Loom and what you're building and they want to become a part of the community, is there somewhere that they should go to learn more? Yeah, so loomx.io is our website and we are most active on Twitter. So we are Loom Network on Twitter. Um, and our Medium publication, which is linked to from our website and our Twitter, that's where we put the majority of our content and updates. So that's the best way to follow what we're doing. Amazing. Well, I'll put all those links uh, and maybe links to some of the articles we referenced in this podcast in the episode description so that people can keep learning more about Loom and scalability and all these uh, issues that we went into. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, James. I now, now we're at 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. for you. So I appreciate you having a late night with me and getting into some of this stuff because I think it's super exciting and I look forward to having another conversation with you about this stuff soon. Yeah, awesome. This has been great. Thanks a lot for having me. If you want to learn more about Enigma, you can visit us at www.enigma.co. Uh, you can go to our blog at blog.enigma.co. You can join our Telegram group at t.me slash Enigma Project. Uh, if you're curious about anything we talked about in the podcast today, make sure you follow the links below in the episode description. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or follow us on Medium so you don't miss our next awesome episode and interview. Otherwise, thank you for listening. We hope to see you next time on Decentralize This. I'm Tor Bear. Have a great day.